Welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Uh, today we have on the musician Weir. That's W-E-I-R. Uh, I met him last year at Arcadia and he crushed it. And we got to connecting through the digital ether. And uh, I felt a resonance. And so we did a podcast and it ended up being incredibly refreshing. Um, if you are either a artist or someone who is interested in the artistic process or someone who knows they want to be an artist but doesn't quite know how to start, there's going to be some gems in today's episode for you guys. Uh, I really love to learn about specific artists' idiosyncratic ways of getting into their process. And we get into that. Uh, it was a great conversation and you're going to love it. These episodes are brought to you by my courses because I don't want to have advertisers on here because it doesn't make sense to me to talk to you about greens powder or boxers or dick pills. Uh, shout out to, you know, Andrew Huberman and Andrew Schultz and Joe Rogan. You know, they're some of the people that I pay attention to and fucking do your thing. Uh, I love it and I respect it, but I'm going to do mine differently. I don't want to do ads. And so I try to pay for the costs of the podcast through the revenue of my courses. And um, just as a point of pride, I like to um, undercharge and over deliver because I don't need the money, but I still charge because one, it keeps me honest, but two, the courses that I make are trying to get people to change their behavior and mainly trying to get people to start to tell the fucking truth, which is one of the scariest things that you could possibly do. Uh, anyone listening to this who has ever tried to help people through any type of like a coach or a therapist or um, a trainer, to the degree that people are resistant to the uncomfortableness of changing their behavior, even though they want some new goal, tends to be the degree to which you need to charge to create a greater discomfort than the discomfort of starting to go to the gym or the discomfort of um, giving up eating ice cream at the end of the day or whatever. And so there's actually this alchemy that comes with money that can get people to finally start to make the changes that they want to make. So I should charge more for my courses, but um, I really like the idea of making it available to people, to, you know, most people. So if you want to support this podcast, you can either go buy one of my courses or you could gift my course to someone that you care about. But that's how you can support this podcast, because if I have any say about it, you're never going to hear me make an ad for fucking there are so many things that I see on podcasts and I'm like, you don't use that. I'm saying that to the host, but anyways, so that's how you can support. And, um, I recently have set up my studio in a way where I now don't need Graham to be present to create something. And it's not because we're fighting and we've broken up. No, he actually helped me create it. I just don't live with him anymore. I now live with Caitlin and, um, I feel like I finally have got it set up to where it'll be easier for me to podcast. And so I think you guys are going to start to get much more from your boy. So thank you 
for your time and your attention. I don't take it for granted. Uh, thank you to everyone who reads and responds to the, my emails. And um, I can, you know, I, I just realized that the podcast, I've done over a hundred episodes and I've had, and I have almost 500,000 downloads. And uh, that's crazy to me because I've never, I don't know, it just hasn't ever been why I've done it. And I feel like I've just begun and I'm so hungry to start to do this more. So without further ado, enjoy today's podcast with the musician Weir. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And I'm looking forward to learning the history of the story that birthed an artist that I didn't like. I'm surprised that you're as young as you are based off of the music that I've heard from you. Um, it feels old and deep and it also feels like it's a band. So I'm surprised, but I would love for you to introduce yourself to the audience and then we're going to get weird. Awesome. Thanks, man. Yeah. I appreciate you having me on. I appreciate the kind words. Um, yeah, my name's Chris Weir. Uh, I go by Weir. Um, I'm a DJ and producer based out of Denver, Colorado. Um, I moved out here into Colorado originally actually to pursue a career in freestyle skiing. Um, and as time went on, I had a bunch of injuries through college and kind of led me into uh, starting my own music project and also my own record label called New Something Records. And uh, so the last few years been releasing music through my label, playing shows, and I've had the opportunity to play at festivals like Same Same But Different, Arcadia, and uh, I've had the opportunity to play in Salt Lake uh, a bunch of times as well, which I love doing. So yeah, Beautiful. thanks for having me. 100%. So the first question is, uh, what do you recall being your first memory? Like, what's the first thing in life that you remember? Wow. Um, probably moving into, I think it was our second or third house as a family. But this is the first thing that I ever remember is just standing in the front yard and seeing all the plants. And I was probably like two and a half or three years old kind of thing. But that's always like the first thing that comes to mind, just thinking back to being in that sure. front yard with my family moving in. What was the primary emotion that you had as you looked out at all the plants? Was it awe or joy? Or Yeah, I'd say awe and uh like a feeling of home. Obviously it's like our house and whatnot, but I, I I feel like a really strong connection, especially with like plants and the color green and just that um that vibe just feels alive to me and, and I feel really connected to that. In hindsight, when do you remember like music as a calling kind of first coming into your life and whispering to you? Um so when I was a kid, both of my brothers grew up playing in bands, like playing guitar and drums and stuff like that. And I kind of got into guitar lessons as well. And it was it was kind of more something to do, I would say. I don't really feel like I felt um, as strong of a calling to actually create it and be uh, you know, a participant actually in it until college. Um, and that was after seeing uh, Odessa live uh, in Boulder. I've been listening to them for a while and was really into music all through my life growing up and stuff from reggae to hip hop to electronic and all, all across the board kind of stuff. But um, that that first show walking out of there was the first time that I, I really deeply connected and was like, wow, I want I want to do some stuff like this, you know. Cool. So I don't want to jump ahead, but I'm going to put a pin in that, that that Odessa moment was like a transformative moment. If we go back to childhood, 
What do you remember being the first story or movie that you fell in love with? I don't know if you've had the opportunity to be around really young children for like extended periods of time, but they often will find a movie or a book or a show, and then they will just rewatch it or reread it for like eight months. What do you remember yours being? Um, Avatar The Last Airbender. It was a Nickelodeon show growing up. That was like easily my favorite show ever growing up. And I've rewatched it, you know, dozens of times since then. And my first EP that I actually ever released was called The Avatar and was directly inspired by that show and stuff. So that's that's an easy no-brainer answer for sure. It's so good. What, what age did you discover that show? I think I was probably six or seven years old, I want to say. It was, it was right around when it came out. I remember watching the, the pilot and being, being in it right at the beginning there. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to ask a question that might be a bit tricky, but I think as a musician, you probably have cultivated the muscle will you, <clears throat> where you won't get stuck. But um, I invite you to perform retelling the story of Avatar The Last Airbender as like a two to three minute bedtime story that you <laughs> tell to your child if they were like a curious eight-year-old. So again, not uh, explaining, but to the, de- to the degree that you can, can you like tell us the story, like where your child, and you know, it doesn't need to be overly complicated, but just how would you tell that story? Yeah, so um, a boy from uh, 100 years ago uh, has been frozen in time in an iceberg. Um, and awakens 100 years into the future amidst a massive global war in which the Fire Nation is trying to take over the world. Um, He meets uh, these people from the Water Tribe and continues on this whole journey all around the world learning about different forms of bending, which is essentially utilizing elements like fire, air, earth, and water um, to conjure different um, abilities and healing and stuff like that. Um, and amidst this whole journey, makes all these friends and really learns a lot about himself, his past, his people, and how to, you know, unite the world and, and put this war um, away forever. So. And what's the ending? He wins. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Yeah, cool. yeah. Okay. In, a, in a peaceful and respectful way, too, which is huge, especially for a kid's show. So Beautiful, yeah. So... The reason I asked that question is because I actually believe that that's the most elegant way to start to get to the root of what our myth is. So Carl Jung, are you familiar with Jung? (laughs) Cool. Yeah. So he has a quote and it's, um, men do not have ideas, ideas have men. And that it's the idea that there's like, archetypical stories that exist in the zeitgeist that catch us and we like want to feed them with the life that we live. And that's like, you know, a part of the human agreement. There's also this idea in like Greek culture that you basically, before you incarnate into a body, you pick a fate, like a like a fate to live out. And then you come into this life and you forgot what you chose because it can't transfer. And you just have to kind of like find your fate again. 
And the Greeks had this idea that we have a internal guardian angel. They didn't use the word angel. They actually used the word daimon, like, like almost daimon, but daimon. It's actually etymologically where we eventually get the word demon, but that's a whole interesting story because monotheistic religions don't want you having a direct connection to the divine, so they're going to call it bad. But that, that whisper, that the whisper is that thing, like that thing that kind of like whispers in the back of our head. And my intuition is that one of the first times that force in us will whisper to us is it attracts us to certain stories. Mm-hmm. And that then like the architecture of that story becomes kind of the architecture of our life. We could go down some rabbit holes about like, well, can you change your fate? And I actually think you can if you want to. I think it's incredibly hard, but it's possible because fate is a metaphor for something. It's not, you know, like atoms collide. But the thing that I hear in your story is that you found early allies in your life, and this is your water tribe. And then as a fucking electronic DJ, you went and mastered or or are in the process of mastering all the different forms of music, you know, Mm -hmm. and that like, that's the avatar collecting his motherfucking things. So what comes up for you as you hear that? Does it resonate? Are there things that you want to add? Like what comes alive for you? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, I think you nailed it for sure. I think the only thing that I would add to it is beyond you know, honing all the skills of each element, I would, uh, and referring to it as music, I would almost refer to as like one of those elements being music, let's say, um, where maybe the other elements are just learning to exist in this reality and learning to navigate relationships and learning how to grow and evolve and stuff like that. Um, so I think that's a, a huge piece of, of the character's journey as well as my own and stuff. And I imagine for other people, especially that resonate with the show, um, But yeah, I really like that. Cool. The next question is, where did, what was your sense? I'm I'm trying to think of the question to get to this. Um, What was the moment in your childhood where you first realized that you were above averagely competent at something that other people care about? And so what I mean by that is people don't end up being in front of microphones, if they didn't have something in their childhood where they're like, oh, I'm good at this, because it, it starts this hunger that you don't get to this point if you don't have that hunger. So I'm curious, what was yours? Like, just to give an example, I learned really quickly in school that like, my brain worked fast. And so I was like, oh, I can do this. You know, whereas my, there was a person in my family who, you know, was this and so she just believed that school was not for her. And then once I found basketball, I was like, oh, shit. And it, 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 it changed who I was. So I would love to hear your yeah. answer. Yeah, I would say probably uh, skiing. Um, I, I grew up skiing since I was around two or three, basically like the year that I could walk. So it's always been a really wow. um, crucial thing of my life and just how I've navigated my life so far. Um, but I remember in elementary school, like learning to hit jumps and starting to do like 360s or doing like my first front flip in a powder and stuff like that. And uh, 
coming home and knowing a lot of friends that grew up skiing as well and stuff, but nobody was like getting upside down or anything. And I was like, oh man, like I, I'm actually kind of good at this. Like I didn't, especially compared to like my friends that are playing football, like a bunch of bigger kids that are just going to destroy me on the field kind of thing. I, I feel like that was the first time that I found something that I was like, oh, I'm actually really connected to this thing and it's clicking with me. And I don't have a lot of other friends that are in that same boat, or at least didn't at the time. And what was the age where you really felt that? Because I know that you started when you were two or three, but what was the age where you were like, oh, this is a thing that I'm good at? Uh, I think probably around 12 or so years old. Um, I grew up racing and was on like a team and stuff growing up, but I, I honestly didn't really enjoy it. It was a lot of sitting around and then you finally get to do your run and just go through your gates and then you got to go sit down and wait to do it again. And so... It, it didn't really connect for me until later in my life once I started doing a little bit more of the freestyle stuff. So it was more, yeah, 12 years old or so. Yeah, because an interesting thing to try to connect to is that before puberty and those hormones start to activate in our body, it's like we as children almost can't even see the like um, competition hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, like we want to do well but the, there's like this biological coupling that happens to like, as soon as testosterone starts to flow through you, it's like, I will sit here all day if it means that on the bus ride home, I beat him, you know? Mm -hmm. Where it's like that type of fuel doesn't exist before the testosterone. Like my moment with basketball happened, I think, how old are you in eighth grade? Like 12? Uh, yeah, I think like maybe 13. It's okay, hard to keep so, track. It's so long yeah. ago. <laughs> when I had my insight around basketball, it happened um, when I was probably about 11 or 12. And I haven't thought about that until now, but I think that might have to do with like, once puberty starts, boys and girls now become, you know, teenagers and they start to really care about this like invisible but ancient thing, which is like, mm -hmm. where do I stand in the hierarchy of people here? Um, you and I have interestingly similar stories where, you know, I found my true path as an artist after years and years of refusing to admit that my injuries were keeping me from going further in basketball. Mm -hmm. Like I was just good enough to entertain the idea of being a professional, not in the US. Like I would have had to have gone to some bum league in Europe, but I would have been able to do it. So what I'm curious to hear is kind of like the story in as long of a way as you want to tell it of the like birth of this dream of being like a professional skier and then the death of it and like mm -hmm. what that low point was. Cause this is, I think kind of the crux of the human condition is we're either completely lost and hopeless or we're pursuing a dream. Mm -hmm. And one of the hardest things about a human being is that if you achieve your dream, or if your dream is taken from you, you have to like die in a way mm -hmm. that we don't really understand how to help each other die. And so sharing our stories helps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, totally. It's super well said. I definitely really resonate with that uh, death and rebirth transition that I think a lot of people go through and can be really difficult. Um, so yeah, as, as far as my side goes, I... Um, 
you know, grew up playing actually a lot of soccer. And that was really kind of my main thing uh, coming into high school as I was getting into skiing. Um, but, you know, I, I grew up in San Francisco. So skiing of, you know, trying to go professional just kind of sounded silly, you know, like I just didn't really think that was on the table. So I was a lot more focused on soccer. Um, and then coming into high school, I went to an all boys Jesuit school. Um, that was That's extremely, right. extremely competitive school and, uh, went to tryouts for just the freshman team. And I didn't make it past even the first cut. Um, and was like, Oh, wow. Yeah, this is probably not for me. I thought it was a lot better than I actually am compared to these guys. And that's kind of what actually led me into skiing was, you know, coming into winter, I still wanted to have something to do. And, um, you know, started hearing about these kind of regional competitions and stuff. So talked to my parents about it, signed up for one and did my first competition and got like third place. So we were really, really excited and kind of just kept that going. And, I ended up going to nationals and that was really just when it started to get a lot more serious for me where I, I went to nationals those next four years. Um, and then coming into college, my whole goal was, you know, I'm you either going to go to... Yeah. I'm curious, like, so you've transitioned to skiing, you're starting to really see like, oh, fuck, I'm good at this. I would love to hear like a specific story of like how you like overcame a block to get to a new, like, what I'm curious in is how did this process start to form your grit? Like, mm -hmm. like what's a good story of like, all right, I was weaker. My mind was weaker in this moment. And then I had this experience and then I fucking learned like, okay, mm -hmm. because I can feel that you have like a grit to you of like, I'm going to mm -hmm. fucking do the thing. Even if it hurts, like I'm going to. Yeah. So I'm curious of like a story there. Yeah, totally. So yeah, I mean, I, I think jumping back to what we were talking about with like me realizing I'm good at skiing, a lot of that was comparing myself to my friends in the Bay Area and like San Francisco and stuff. Because um, they're not skiing nearly as much freestyle skiing is not really a thing there, you know, so going to nationals for my first year and seeing all these kids that, you know, grew up in Breckenridge, and they're skiing every single day and seeing what they can do definitely was really eye opening and just like, oh, crap, I really need to like step it up. Um, so I think after that first year, that was really eye opening and inspiring for me to see like, oh, there's so much more that I can do to like really get on this level. So um, I think really just seeing like the lay of the land and like actually who I'm competing against on uh, a more legitimate level compared to just comparing myself to other kids that just don't really ski that much. Of course, I'm going to feel like I'm a good skier. But um, actually being around that and seeing, you know, them with all their coaches and how seriously everybody was taking it was hugely inspirational. And I feel like just really pushed me to learn as many tricks as I could like that next year and just really keep, keep pushing and keep filming and doing whatever I could to, to make it happen. So. Cool. And so like any good story, there's about to be the shoe drops. So what happens? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, coming into college, um, I, you know, join the ski team here at Boulder. Um, it's just a club freestyle ski team. So we do some regional competitions and then uh, nationals every year. And my freshman year, um, I was skiing at Breckenridge and came off a rail early and hit my knee on one of the posts on it and basically ripped like a huge chunk out of my knee and could see my kneecap. It was really, really not fun and very uh, intense for sure. Just never really having a serious injury yet. And yeah. I was out for six weeks, had to do surgery. And then first week back into skiing, I was going to Oregon for nationals and still was ended up, you know, being able to compete and did really well. Um, wow. 
And then that following year hurt my other knee, the following year I hurt my other shoulder, and then the following year I hurt my other shoulder. So it was just, you know, really started to catch up to me. And amidst all of that was when I was really kind of getting into music, like going to that first Odessa show, um, and just feeling more and more, you know, like, wow, I don't know if I really have this in me anymore, as well as just kind of seeing like the level of competition that the pros were at. And I do I really want to get to that level, especially with the injuries that I've had, like this is feeling more and more dangerous and less and less likely. Um, so I'm really grateful that I was kind of finding music amidst that whole time of life, where as I was, you know, kind of finding my way out of skiing and realizing that wasn't really the path, I already had this other thing that was really lighting me up that it it didn't really feel like, oh, I'm hanging up the towel and I'm so sad that I don't have skiing anymore. It was it was a really seamless transition for me that I'm really grateful about. And I, I still get to go ski, which is great. I just take it a lot easier now. So interesting. Yeah. It's um it seems rare that people can kind of gracefully move between like one worldview and then the next. Like one this is the goal, but I guess what I'm hearing is like, like one of the questions that comes up is like, to the degree that it makes sense for you to share, did you have a type of like family situation where you would have been okay if you didn't make it to the tops through skiing, like financially, emotionally? Like, I think a lot of people, I'll just speak for me, like, um, basketball was the only thing that I could see that could improve the quality of my life in the way that I thought was possible. Like I didn't understand any other way. So when I couldn't do it, it was quite traumatic. I'm curious, like, Mm -hmm. was that pressure there? And if so, I guess what that means is that you saw a path through music that was just like so clear that you were like, I'm just going to click into this route. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think um, I'm really blessed in the fact that um, it, it was an easy transition for me of kind of like switching teams in a way, um, just in the sense of one, I had like a lot of injuries and I knew I'm probably not going to get injured DJing and just playing shows. So that was <laughs> like a, just weighing them back and forth. I was like, I'm probably not going to hit my head like on stage, you know, so that's that's a that's a one to one to zero there. And then I think too, the more that I was pursuing skiing, the more that I was realizing that, um, it's really, really difficult to make a career out of it. Even if you're at like the tippy top and like winning X games, like the Olympics, that's kind of where you could actually have like a really comfortable and satisfactory life in my mind. But kind of anything below that is, is really, really difficult. There's just not a whole lot of money in the sport compared to like skateboarding or basketball and stuff. And I yeah. think those two factors combined, like as I was coming out of college, I was like, I, I don't really want to, you know, put all my chips in for this when in reality, it's not really going to pay off, you know, 10, 15 years down the line where I really felt like music was like a safer option from an injury standpoint. And then two, um, just really seeing that there's a little bit more longevity. And I think that I can do more with the career there. Um especially in the sense of, you know, even if my, my project weir doesn't ever necessarily take off, I could see myself working in the industry as like a manager or an agent or something like that, where with skiing, I was thinking about that a lot too. And just wasn't really having a, an easy time of finding like, okay, what could be the backup plan that would really set me up well, and I could be comfortable and, and happy with whatever it is that I'm doing. And it just, as I was going through that analysis towards the end of college, it just music felt clearer and clearer as, uh, as the right way to go. 
One of the questions that's coming up is, what is the story of the first time that you experienced the flow state with skiing? Like, I would love to just hear what that oh, wow. story is like for you. Um, and also how you would explain the quality of the flow state that you get from skiing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think like trying my first flips, like getting upside down on skis was the first time that I kind of scratched that, I would say. Um, and it's become something that I've tapped into more and more as my life has gone on. But I think, um, yeah, like doing my first flips or dropping in for a competition for my first time or whatever it is. Um, I think that level of like pressure and adrenaline kind of leads me to really like put the blinders on where it's like, I don't hear, I don't see people on the side of the run, you know, for the competition or anything. It's just, I'm so in what I'm doing and so focused in it. Um, and you know, it's such a magical feeling of just truly feeling like time stops and you're like, you couldn't be more present in what you're doing. Um, and so I, I frequently found that when I was trying new tricks or dropping in for a run where it's like, you just have to be so dialed and so tapped into exactly what you're doing. Um, and I've since found that a lot, lot more through, through music and stuff, especially playing shows or even working on music. So if you had, to try to convey the quality of being in, in that ski run where you're in the flow state, like if you had to try to like give it adjectives or adverbs, mm -hmm. you know, like not qualities like timelessness, but like how does it feel to you to be inside of, of that type of flow state? Uh, blissful, I would say. Um, I feel like addicted is a really strong word, but I feel like that's no, feel like you. pretty on point. Um, especially with like, it, it truly feels like, especially with like a comp run kind of thing. It's like, I get to the bottom and I like tap back in and I'm like, what just happened? Like, I don't even like remember it because I was so into what I was doing. So I think that's where that feeling comes from, which is like, oh man, I want to, I want to get back into that feeling, you know? Um, so. Yeah, I think bliss is a, a really good way of putting it, I would say. Um, just purely, yeah, it's it's just hard to beat, man. It's just you're so so connected to yourself and to what you're doing and stuff. And I feel like it's a really valuable mental state to be in. There's this idea that there's things that are called hyper-conversations. And like a hyper-conversation would be like, I'm going to use a analogy to try to explain this, but it's like, if you've ever done mushrooms or if you've ever done ayahuasca, it's like each of those things are like, it's their own room in the collective unconscious. Like the ayahuasca mm -hmm. room is this distinct feeling thing that you can tell whether or not you're in the room when you're in the room. <laughs> and it's like, you could not be in the room for four years. And then you go back into the room and it picks up right where it left you off. And you're mm -hmm. like, oh my, that's kind of what like a hyper conversation is, is that it's, it's a type of conversation that you know it when you're in it. And when you're in it, it picks up from the last time that you had something mm -hmm. like that. So we think of your flow state as like a hyper conversation that you're having with yourself. Have you had a moment DJing? 
where you entered into a flow state that felt like it was the same space that you were in when you were skiing? And if so, what's that story? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I feel like that's a huge reason why I'm as into music as I am and why I right. want to do yeah. it is the it's the the level that I get into when I'm dropping in for like a competition run, like I was saying with the adrenaline and like pressures on there's people there, you have to, you know, really perform. Um, getting into that state and having the adrenaline really be something that like fuels me to go as hard as I can with it. The only place in my life where I've felt that same experience has been on stage, um, where you feel the exact same nerves leading up to it, where like your heart rate's kind of going up and up until you finally drop in to go do it or hop on stage to start your show. And um, I think uh, that parallel is really what keeps me interested in a way is like I I still get nervous for shows even though I've been doing this forever and I'm so grateful that I do because I think if I didn't have those nerves at all I wouldn't be able to like tap into that space or that room like you were just talking about um so I think that's a huge reason why I'm as passionate about uh performing as I am is because it's like that direct connection to to doing those comp runs that I'm not really capable of doing anymore so it's 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 a beautiful thing so what was kind of the beginning story for you as it goes to transitioning from skiing to doing music? Like if we were to make a slum dog millionaire movie script <laughs> of like, all right, where'd you start? How'd you grow? What's that mm -hmm. story? Yeah. So, um, I, like I was saying earlier, I was a really, really big, uh, reggae fan actually when I was first coming out of high school and into college and was going to like tons of reggae shows in Boulder um, while I was going to school there and, you know, was also listening to like Pretty Lights and Odessa and a lot of this electronic yeah. kind of stuff. And finally going to see Odessa in person, um, I had never really been to an electronic show and I always thought it was just guys kind of like clicking buttons, you know, like it didn't, I never really understood it. And then finally seeing them and they're playing drums live and doing everything live and stuff. I was just completely blown away seeing that there's so much more to this than I realized. And, you know, that's kind of when things kind of like clicked, but I didn't really act on it for quite a while. It wasn't until the following year we started throwing um, like house parties at our uh, house up in Boulder just on the weekends. And a friend of mine would bring his little DJ controller over. It was like a really old tractor, like the first generation, like very, very basic controller, but he was bringing them over so we could DJ and have like, you know, parties and stuff. And uh, every weekend he'd bring this thing over and he finally kind of got to the point where he was like, I'm sick of bringing this back and forth. Let me just like leave it there. And so I just took it up in my bedroom and just started teaching myself like every day, just spending so much time on it, trying to make mixes and stuff. Um, and then from there, you know, like maybe six months later, I got Ableton, which is like a production software. You can actually make your own music. Um, and for the first like year or so, I was just like, I don't know how to use this. Like I, I opened it up a few times and was just like, I don't get it at all. Like I just really kind of focused on the DJing stuff. And, you know, at some point wanted to get into making my own stuff. And, you know, it wasn't until towards the end of uh, college that I started playing, you know, more parties and started playing in some actual venues and then really started to, you know, make my own stuff. But I really, really focused on, you know, the DJing side for a number of years until I finally kind of weaved back into making my own stuff. Um, so it's been a really interesting journey of starting with only playing other people's music to finally having some of my music to now having a lot of my own music. 
And now it's a lot more about like, okay, how can I find other music that really relates to what I'm making to make a performance that reflects me as an artist rather than just focusing on like, hey, let's get people dancing and all this and that, which is obviously fun, but it's just a very uh, different, you know, kind of style of doing things and stuff. So it's been really interesting kind of walking that line and learning to, you know, own my voice and develop my voice and uh, hone it in with other people's music and stuff. It was a little ranty. I hope that kind of answers no, your question. Perfect. <laughs> no, it's perfect. So um, there's a couple of things here. Just to pin, I'd love to hear. Here's a couple of questions. So I'll see if I can get to all of them. One, I know that one of the things that my soul is begging me to do is to learn how to produce music. And when mm-hmm. I was in college, the way, here's how I learned. Uh, I will go Google who invented the thing. So whatever it is I'm interested in, I try to go all the way back and then I'll buy all of their books or read all of their essays. So obviously to become a producer, I like looked up the people who invented the things that came before an 808 and then I bought mm-hmm. a textbook on Ableton and then I tried to study the, and I never made a single note in Ableton. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the first question and I'll let, and we'll put a pin in it, and then I'll ask the next one, and then we'll come back to it. Is that what is the advice that you have for people who want to make their own music, but they open something like Ableton and they just don't even fucking know how to even mm-hmm. explain how much they don't know to Google to begin to know anything? So I just want to pin mm-hmm. that. The other question that came up was, you said that you that w- things clicked once you saw Odessa and that you knew that you were going to that you wanted to do something like that but you didn't really do it for like a year. I'm mm-hmm. curious did you get sick? Did you have bad luck? Like did it feel like there was some force in your life for that year where you were ignoring the call that felt like it was kind of trying to fuck with you? So those are the two questions and I'll stop there. Yeah, cool. So I'll start with the second one first. Um, I think uh, that initial calling for me was more of like a deeper connection with music and not necessarily like a calling to create or participate in it. I had no idea how to even go about that kind of stuff. It was just a, yeah, just like a deeper understanding of it and just being like, oh, wow, I really deeply connect with this. And I didn't realize how deeply I could. and, you know, that next year, my buddy just bringing his his DJ controller over is kind of what really got me into it. And then that following summer, I actually went to a music festival, saw Odessa, Rufus, you know, a bunch of amazing acts. And that's where the calling actually clicked from, oh, I really like this to this is what I'm here to do. This is why I'm on this planet. And this is what I, I need to do as a person. Um, so a quick pause. So mm-hmm. that moment, what I'd like what would be what would feel like a great gift to the audience is for you to like take a moment to like zoom into that moment again and like remember what were you wearing what it what temperature was it outside what time of day who are you with and if you could just like hallmark card yourself back into that moment mm-hmm. tell us that story like like it was like a trip report or like mm-hmm. it was like a journal entry that you were writing to your past self. Like, because mm-hmm. that moment, man, that moment is the moment that most people who are listening to this podcast 
are either waiting for or don't even believe is real. Mm -hmm. Because the people who have hit that point, they almost seem superhuman to us. Mm -hmm. Or we can't tell because they don't ever talk about it because they're in denial of it and they're deeply mm -hmm. out of alignment. So it feels like this is a really important story. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. So it was the second day of this festival called Vertex out in Buena Vista. Um, beautiful event, very, very small as far as like number of attendees, but had, you know, world-class acts like Odessa. Um, and yeah, I think I was in a very transitional time in my life. This was after, you know, my second serious injury skiing and I was getting deeper into the business school at Boulder. Um, and was just feeling, I don't know, very disconnected from my peers in the school and from everybody's goals and what everybody wants to do. Um, not necessarily everybody, but I just, I remember feeling um, a little isolated just as far as I felt like most people that I was around were just like, I can't wait to graduate and like work in a cubicle and then get a yacht and do all this and that. And I was like, that doesn't sound appealing to me in any way. So I feel like I was already in this mode of kind of searching for what do I really want to do um, amidst this whole time of, of kind of realizing skiing is maybe not going to be the thing. Um, so I think going to that festival and having that day, like that second day there, just standing out in the grass, I was watching classics. Um, actually, I'm not sure where exactly they're from, but they're a really, really fun kind of like disco-y house group. I don't even really listen to them that much. And they weren't even the act that necessarily like inspired me, but they just happened to be who was playing. And I think standing there on the grass, watching them play, watching so many people connect and have so much fun, um, especially after like my first day, this is my first camping festival I'd ever been to. Um, yeah. I just felt so at home and so like welcomed and the opposite of how I felt in the business school, you know, being around all these people that are a lot more eclectic, a lot more personable, a lot more outgoing, a lot warmer. Um, yeah. It, it just made sense to me. Um, and so I think that was just like, I had this moment of just being like, oh, this, these are my people and this is what I want to be doing and kind of realizing, you know, I originally wanted to start like maybe a clothing company, like in the ski industry and stuff and realized standing there that there's no product that I can make, especially a clothing product that is going to bring somebody this level of joy or somebody this much value that I'm feeling right now from this music or that I've felt from this experience and just kind of realizing yeah. like, why am I thinking about making t-shirts? You know what I mean? Like this, this yeah. feels, you know, very um, authentic to me and like the most value that I can bring to others. And that's not, you know, to talk shit on people that have clothing companies. I love clothing companies and still want to explore that side of things. But um, it was just clear as day of realizing like, yeah, for me personally, this feels like the most value that I can give to other people just in the sense of the value that I've gotten from music and from these experiences. And that's just what I want to give back. Was there a chemical cocktail recipe going on that day? <laughs> uh, LSD gummy bears. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. 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 I remember the first time that I went to a camping festival. And it's like, there's this really cool idea that Nietzsche wrote about, you know, over 150 years ago, where he talked about, like, Western culture has, like, two gods that it worships. One's Apollo and one's Dionysus. And Apollo is the god that we worship during the day. And this is 
If you imagine human behavior as how humans worship gods, during the day, we follow the time and the calendar. We have set institutions. We know the rules and the agreements and everything's very structured. And that's what allows, you know, for 8 million people to live in one area. Like without Apollo, that's impossible. But at night, we worship Dionysus. And Dionysus is, his, his essence is the festival. It's like to be over, to have rationality overwhelmed by what the body feels and that every culture throughout history has had like a dichotomous dance between these two like gods. In modern Western culture, because we so deeply lack like any type of um, initiation for young people, it's like the festival has been like the initiation into Dionysus in our culture. And man, mm -hmm. like the first time I went to a festival, and of course I was on some LSD too, and just to like, first, we, we have almost no cultural context for a massive group of people responding to a vibration in rhythm to the vibration. Mm -hmm. And like, there's something about witnessing that, that inherently creates goosebumps in us. And I, could, and I think it's because it's this ancient evolutionary instinct where if humans are starting to act like that, something really big is about to happen. Mm -hmm. Like if all the humans start to like go into coherence with each other, that's basically just been war or orgies. You know, it's like mm -hmm. the just, you know, complete death or complete life type of thing. And that, like, there's something about the camping element that the modern Western person, like, if you haven't had yourself ripped from the teeth of, like, AC, and mm -hmm. whenever I need anything, I have Wi-Fi. Like, it's just enough of a pressure to, like, start to, like, wake people up. And the really interesting thing, and I'm just kind of having this thought now, is it's like, Almost every open-minded person I've ever met has been to some type of experience like that. Mm -hmm. But what's also true is like 90% of the mentally ill people I've met have gone to too many of those and gone too yeah. hard. And so the, yeah. there's this really like, the gods won't be denied. They're going to find a way to be worshipped because they're archetypes in the collective unconscious. At least that's how Jung would see it. And it's like Dionysus is just like what his name implies. Like, you know, his, his, his other name was Pan. And that's where we get the root for panic and pandemonium, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's like, that thing is there. And so I guess I would just love to hear what comes up for you after, you know, me ranting on that for a moment. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm not super familiar um, with that side of things, to be honest, but uh, definitely super interesting and kind of, you know, especially talking about like the the nighttime versus day and stuff. I'd never heard those, those, uh, you know, comparisons and whatnot. But yeah, I mean, I, I think you hit a really important point with it is that like, and something that I'm really conscious of and, and trying to uh, manage and stuff is you can have these eye-opening like mind-blowing experiences that completely change your life like I did at that festival and stuff. But I think it's really important to, um, I forget who said it. Um, it might've been Aldous Huxley. I can't remember, but it was something along the lines of beware of unearned wisdom. 
um, kind of talking yeah. about psychedelics and whatnot of, you know, so I think there actually, is a lot of value. That was actually Carl Jung writing a letter to a friend. And I, I kind of disagree with it, but I know exactly what he means. And I agree with what you mean. So yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, cause I, I think there is like huge value that you can get out of these things. But I think it is really important to always keep like at least at least part of yourself, like in reality, you know, it's like, it's good to explore out there and see what, what you can find, what you can learn and stuff. But I think there's a certain point where, um, you can get a little bit greedy almost. And I think that's where like a lot of the risk kind of comes along to, um, like just going down that never ending rabbit hole. And I think it's really important to realize, you know, like you can get so much out of it, but you don't need to always go to that level, you know? For sure. The where I'm at in my, you know, internal monologue rant about this type of thing is it's like, you know, Alan Watts has the quote, once you get the message, hang up the phone. And it's like, what I would offer is call whenever you want, but in between calling, build something that proves that you've made the phone call. And like, what Mm -hmm. I mean by that is it's like, We live in an age where there's more cliches than original thoughts just bouncing all over the internet. And it's like, the world would change so rapidly if the psychonauts who have touched God actually built shit. Mm -hmm. You know, that if if even 10% of our generation who has touched, like, the ultimate truth that we are all so deeply interconnected that you can't punch anyone in the face and it not be a violation against yourself, like that level of compassion. Mm -hmm. But our brothers and sisters just don't build shit that works Mm -hmm. in the three-dimensional world, you know? And that's kind of like where I'm at right now, which is like, yes, the psychedelic renaissance is great for all the people who haven't picked up the phone yet at all. Mm-hmm. For all the people who have picked up the phone, it's like, what are you doing with the fact that you got to talk to God? You know, mm-hmm. and it's the answers. I think the answer. This is a whole rabbit hole that I'm just going to touch. Uh, I'm going to describe the shape of the hole, and we're not going to dive into it unless you want to. But just the shape of the mm-hmm. hole is. Are you familiar with this thing called existential risk? Uh. Maybe. I'm not sure. So, I, a um, a philosopher from Oxford, uh, probably about 13 years ago, he wrote a book. Um, I think it's called Precipice, but he basically outlines that mathematically, the statistical chance that humans extinct themselves in the next one to 500 years is profoundly disturbingly high and that the four most likely existential risks so an existential risk is something that would ex- would extinct humanity one is nuclear war two is the emergence of ai you know and there's just so many question marks with what that is three is a decentralization of access to biological weapons so like as we increase how easy it is to splice genes, the type of person who can get to that becomes larger and larger. 
And the fourth one is just complete ecological collapse, which is like, you know, just the the reefs and the rivers just fucking get to the point where it's fucked. Okay. Heavy stuff, but um, long story short, I think we have the... It's mathematically impossible to say that we don't have a chance. And I think that there's a way of living life that maximizes the chance that we don't go extinct. And that I think one of the keys to maximizing that is to have this profound, you know, pick up the phone call moment where it's like, there is something else happening behind the scenes. This is not a uncaring random universe. I have a destiny. I have a thing that cares about it. And there's this trust. But the other part of it is you're going to have to give it your fucking best. Like your absolute fucking best. And I think a part of what that requires is you have to make shit. You know, like you as a musician, you're creating things. Like if we could see the psychological world the way that we can see the 3D world, we would be less confused. But like Mm -hmm. with your sound, you're creating a fucking alchemical container. And then you're like infusing it with vibration, which would be almost like water. And then there are actual transformations of consciousness happening within the container. That's building something. Mm -hmm. A lot of my brothers and sisters build nothing, only consume. And I guess the, what they build is like, um, snarky tweets or passive aggressive Instagram stories. And Mm -hmm. it's like, um, I think everybody's an artist. And um, I'm, I love talking to artists to help people get a little bit of inspiration to realize like, oh yeah, I could be that. So thank you for allowing me to get on my soapbox and to talk about the rabbit hole of existential <laughs> yeah. whatever you want. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I really uh, resonate, with, especially with what you were just talking about with like, um, I think a lot of people think, you know, oh, I'm not an artist or I'm, I'm not creative or I'm just like not that kind of person. And I think you nailed it where I think everybody is. And I think creation of anything, like any outlet where you can move whatever it is that you're feeling or thinking or whatever it is into something, I would argue is like crucial for humanity. It's not even like, oh, this could be fun for you or it'll, it'll help you keep busy or something. Like I really, truly think it's crucial for like staying sane and and happy in a way. Um, Because I think otherwise, if you don't have something like that, all of that just stays in you. Um, And I think one of the most beautiful things about for for me making music and, you know, for other people, it's different and stuff. But it's not just about moving things out of you. It's also then hearing that back, and then continuing to move that out. And it it becomes this like feedback loop that I think it's so therapeutic and and so important that uh, I wish everybody had something like that that they can do where they can they can move that and have this self therapy in a way. Because um, I think it's just it's beautiful and, and crucial, honestly. I love that, and I completely agree. And the question that comes up is, what is your daily artistic like routine look like? And again, I don't like the word routine because I feel like. And my inner life, I am dramatic as fuck. Like it, it is a fucking <laughs> Greek play to the highest degree when it comes to like my inner world. 
but um like i'm really trying to cultivate as deeply a religious attitude around my creative process as is authentic like that's like and in order for it to be authentic i can't just jump to like hymns and shit like you know i'm mm-hmm. slowly like i bow before i walk into my room i light a candle i'm just trying to play around with techniques to help mm-hmm. it feel like i'm stepping into a non-ordinary state of consciousness without having to fucking microdose you know like if you microdose yeah. every day you don't microdose you just fucking take yeah. something every so i would just love yeah. to hear what's what's your practice like yeah totally um I, I think over the last year or two, I've tried to become a lot more ritualistic in that way, specifically with creating, um, where like this room that I'm in right now is my music studio, but it's also my office where I run, you know, everything as far as like business for my music project, as well as my record label. So um, it's a lot of phone calls, a lot of emails and stuff during the day. And then typically, I, I feel a lot more creative at night, typically between like 11pm and 6am for whatever reason, that's wow. just when I write. But Something quick that's question. really a oh, quick question because I envy artists who are artistic in the evening because it's like I got to do mine first thing in the morning and then by noon I'm fucking exhausted in my head. But then I have mm-hmm. my entire work day and, mm-hmm. and and then I just fucking lay on the couch wasted in the evening. And I'd love to be able to <laughs> yeah. flip that. Um, yeah. Do you use anything like cannabis or caffeine or anything in the evening? And if so, what? Yeah. So, uh, during the day I drink cold brew, um, typically, uh, during the week. And then on the weekends, every once in a while, I like to do cacao, um, in the morning. And I, I really enjoy that because for me, caffeine is always like a go, go, go kind of thing. It's like I, I pour it and I walk into the studio and then I'm just working all day. Um, where for me personally, and at least how I use cacao, it takes a little bit longer to make and it's a little bit more ritualistic in that way. Um, so with that, I actually prefer to like go outside, sip on it, listen to like a whole album and headphones and really just sit with it and using it as a way to slow down rather than speed up. Yeah. Um, but so that's, that's typically like how I go about the day. And then at night, um, you know, I, I used to smoke a lot more weed and I've recently gotten a, a much better relationship with it, I would say. And what I've found is when I go to write, I'll mess around for maybe 30 minutes to an hour. And then once something happens, like something clicks where I hear a certain sound or a certain melody where I'm like, oh, that's that's the idea. And I can see the path starting to form for where the sound or the song wants to go. Um, I talk about like the muse a lot with that, or it's yeah. like, that's when the muse shows up. Um, so in the last few months, I've done totally different instead of just kind of like smoking as I'm making things all the time. I spend that first hour really just messing around, seeing what's going to happen. And then once something clicks, then I'll smoke and I'll light a bit of Palo Santo. And then I just go cool. fully in. Um, cool. And then from there, what really helps me, and I know everybody's very different. Like I have friends that when they smoke pot and they try to make music, it just doesn't work. Like they just get too yep. caught up and they can't get it moving. Where for me... That's how it is if I start, but if I wait until I'm at least a little bit into the idea, it really helps keep it moving. And then two, I would argue it's my most helpful tool as far as fatigue goes, where I can start working at 10, 11 p.m. And, you know, maybe by one or two in the morning, I'm starting to hit this point of like, okay, like 
I've been doing this for so long that it's kind of just like stuck in my head and I can't really think about this objectively of like what needs to change, like what else can I add to it? So stepping out of the room, hitting the pen again, and then coming back in 5, 10, 15 minutes later, putting headphones back on, it's literally like hearing the song for the first time for me where I can actually hear things way more objectively and be like, oh, that's a little bit too loud. Or like, what if we added this? Or if I resampled that? Um, so for me, it's a really, really helpful tool. But again, I think it's really crucial to figure out where that's most useful. And I think that applies to everything too. You know, like that, you know, maybe coffee is for other people and that's how they like to produce and stuff. But I would definitely urge everyone, no matter what it is you're doing, experiment with using those tools in different contexts and at different times in whatever process that you're doing. Um, and I've learned so much about myself in that where, uh, like I was saying earlier, it's like I, I run the whole business in here and I mix all my music in here and stuff. But I found personally, I have a really hard time actually creating something in here. Um, so what I typically do is I go down into my bedroom, I either sit in my bed or at my desk in my room. Um, or if I'm at my parents' house in New Mexico, like I'll work in their kitchen. Like I've just found personally that I can create and actually write something if I'm not in this room because it's so familiar where after I get something going in another room or a different space, then I can come in here and actually take it further and, and get it to sound as good as I need to. So um, I think that's something that's so important that I don't think enough people talk about is like, where do you work and when do you work? And then going off of that, you know, when are you doing practical work versus when are you doing creative work and also where for both of those things? Because like I said, like, I do all my practical work in here, but for actually creating something, I have a very hard time like tapping into that space unless I kind of change my environment and stuff. So that's just 100%. me personally, that's not for everybody. But I think it's a really interesting thing to look at um, for whatever it is that you're doing and just better understanding yourself. Yeah, there's a great quote that I just found today, and I'll read it really quick because it, it fits right into what we're talking about. So this is a quote by Peter Drucker, who was like, um, he was almost like a philosopher, but for business management. And if you're into business, like Peter Drucker is one of the top thinkers in the last 50 years. He's He passed away, but check out this quote. In a few hundred years, when the history of our time will be written from a long-term perspective, it is likely that the most, uh, the most important event historians will see is not technology, not the internet, and not e-commerce. It is an unprecedented change in the human condition. For the first time, literally, substantial and rapidly growing numbers of people have choices. For the first time, they will have to manage themselves. And society is totally unprepared for it. And so what he means by that is we have more freedom in our life than even kings had. And that's hard for people to really grasp. But like the amount of choices that was available for how to live your life to 99.99% of all of humanity that has ever existed pales in comparison to the amount of choices that we have now. And that one of the like, key like disciplines of our time is to learn how to design our our days and our weeks because we actually can and i think it terrifies mm -hmm. us and as an artist one of the most crucial like tasks of your life is to actually experiment with how you design how you live to get the best art out of your life 
There's a really great book that I would recommend to anyone who considers themselves an artist. By the way, everyone's an artist. And so if you don't consider yourself an artist, you know, you've got to work through that. But it's called Daily Rituals. I forget who it's by, but it's a collection of like 260, like one page, like reviews of some of the greatest creatives of all time, what their daily rituals were like. And it's so cool to just like read through like, oh, this is what Beethoven's was. This is what Mozart's was. This is what Freud's was. This is what Jung's was. Uh, Emerson, like all these incredible artists. And so just deeply recommend people like really take this point home. And the next question that came up while you were describing that was, Weed inhibits our ability to dream. So that's one cost of weed if you do it within like four hours of sleeping. But what's also really interesting is if you work on a problem right before bed, your subconscious can't help but try to work on it while you sleep. And you will either wake up with an insight or you'll have a dream where the insight comes through. And so I'm curious, do you have insights on your creative projects come to you when you wake up or, and the other question is, do you remember your dreams? Um, I very rarely ever remember my dreams. <laughs> I think that's how you nailed it. I think it's because, yeah, that's what happens. But, um, I still have them, but they, they're very like fleeting. It's like, I wake up and I'm like, what was that? And then I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> it's like already gone. Um, but yeah, I, I think so. I mean, like I said, I work so late into the night that I literally have to like force myself to go to bed by like six where I'm like, all right, dude, like you've made this far enough. Like you have to sleep now. Um, and I think by the time I wake up, I'm obviously pretty like groggy cause I stayed up so late. So what I like to do is kind of like flow through the day and then coming into it that following evening, I've had like enough time to like really like kind of process. And then I'm also coming into it very fresh, right? I almost can't really remember exactly how it goes or like the ins and outs of it and stuff. So I think I definitely get insights overnight, especially when I'm working like all the way until the second that I go to sleep. It, it definitely is doing something. But um, yeah, I think typically I like to wait a little bit before hopping back in because I think if I hop in too quickly, um, I don't think I'm as objective as I could be with it rather than like kind of letting it process and, and happen throughout the day, if that makes sense. 100%. What is the story of your favorite song? Like, how did it come to you? Why is it your favorite? Like, what was that experience like? Um, Inner Bloom by Rufus Dussault probably is the first one that comes to mind. I actually did a cover of it uh, a couple of years ago now. And um, yeah, I don't know. I that one's just always been so special for me. Like I remember listening to it in the car, like the day that it came out, it came out with like a couple little singles and stuff. And, um, I just remember hearing it and being like, wow, I've never heard house music or dance music be so emotional and so, um, meditative at the same time. It was just this whole new context of still using that same rhythm that you hear in so much music, but with this whole other side to it, that was just so, impactful for me. Um, and then I think seeing them actually perform it live, uh, especially like really solidified it for me where even to this day, you know, I found that song probably seven or eight years ago, like when it first came out and if I throw it on in any context whatsoever, I feel goosebumps like all over my body completely. Like it just hits 
every time it never doesn't hit like that for me. Um, tons of other songs that I absolutely love, but that's one that just no matter what always gets to me um, so, so deeply. And again, I think a huge piece of it is seeing it live um, really, yeah. I think, makes such an insane impact um, uh, for people. And, you know, kind of tying back to that festival being like, this is really what I want to do. It wasn't just, I want people to hear my music. It's like, I want to be up there and like sharing this experience with all of us because that's that's where I feel the most alive and where I get the most out of music um, personally. 100%. So I forgot who gave this piece of advice, but I heard someone recently, because I have a few friends who are musicians and producers, and it's clear why they're my friends because it's a denied part of me that I still have to like resurrect. But I heard this piece of advice that like the best way to self-teach yourself how to be a musician or a producer is to pick your favorite songs and literally try to recreate it. Like mm -hmm. don't remix it, literally try to recreate it because it will teach you one, how to listen. It teaches mm -hmm. you how to, how to deconstruct and it'll teach you how to make the sounds that you like the most. And that that's actually a mm -hmm. really good place to start. The other thing is, um, what do you think goosebumps are? <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I assume it's just like association, you know, in our brain of, of having, um, you know, I think it happens in a lot of different ways, you know, beyond goosebumps and stuff, but it's like, it could be even like smelling something. Um, like for me, like I smell rosemary. I always think about my mom making butternut squash risotto when I was little. It's like an instant association like that. And I think when you have a really profound, deep experience with music, or maybe I was feeling goosebumps or just like feeling so emotional listening to that music that now whenever I hear it, it just, that's just what happens. It brings me like right back to that moment of, of really experiencing that. But from a physiological standpoint, I have no idea what it is. <laughs> so the reason I ask is because um, one, like, when you really get into Jungian psychology and you begin to appreciate how your conscious mind is like 1% of what's going on and that there are these huge forces that are also you, but they're not conscious and they're mm -hmm. behind the conscious mind and they interact with the conscious mind through different ways. And then you weave in the idea that the Greeks had of the daimon which is that there's this like guardian spirit that is trying to bring you into alignment with your fate. I think goosebumps are when that inner force sees or experiences something in your environment where it's like, that's a part of it. And like, so physiologically, goosebumps are fascinating. So in our evolutionary history, we were prey animals first and we eventually evolved into predators. And so we have both of those type of neurological circuitry in our brain. And the prey response to the presence of a predator is, the, is goosebumps, where the head starts to stand on end to make the prey animal look as large as it possibly can to attempt to... to um, defer or deter a fight. As a predator, when we see a prey animal, there's this maximum focus and we like lock in and it becomes like the only thing that we see. 
And there seems to be something unique about the human physiology where when we're in the presence of something that simultaneously feels like a predator, so it's so big that it actually scares us, one of our responses is goosebumps. But the other thing is we become like transfixed on it like we're a predator that sees prey and that both of those things are happening in the same moment with goosebumps. And I really try to treat goosebumps as like, if it comes up during a conversation or during music or during a movie, I really try to zoom in on like what was just happening in my consciousness because this is a sign from my inner whisper, whispering mm-hmm. to me, this right here is important. Mm-hmm. That's super cool. Definitely, definitely resonate with that for sure. What is your, like, how far into the horizon of your future have you looked and what do you want to create? You know, like, as it's like, I guess the first part of that question is how far into the horizon of your future have you looked where you have an idea of like, I want this future to eventually be present? Um, not that far, to be honest. Um, I think like we were talking about earlier, just like really putting the blinders on like flow state kind of thing. But then also I think just in general, I've been so focused on this that I think the more that I think about the future, I get, um, more nervous and also almost a little bit more manic in a way of like setting these goals and like having to meet these goals by then and stuff. So I've been really trying to stay as present as I can and really just actively focused on like what matters right now. And like, I know generally where I want to get to, but not put too much pressure on it. Um, but to answer your question, I'd say probably like five or so years. Um, I, I think that's really the big thing for me is like, by the time I'm, you know, early thirties, I want to be really, um, really doing this. You know what I mean? Like I, I've had some great experiences and I have a solid fan base and stuff, but it's still, uh, in its early ages. Um, so I think that's like my biggest focus over these next few years is really taking this to where it can get to. And, uh, just being comfortable so that I can spend that much more time on this and put everything that I have into this to, you know, provide the best experiences that I can at shows and for people listening at home. And, you know, from there, really building it out into whatever I can. Um, you know, like one, one dream that I have is uh, my parents live down in, in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and go down to visit there like all the time and um, have a deep respect and fascination with uh, Native Americans here in the States, especially down in New Mexico. There's just like a way bigger population and connection down there and love the jewelry, love all the their culture and everything. Like they're just the sweetest people and um, obviously heavily disadvantaged by, you know, our history in this country and stuff. And um, I think at one point in my career, ideally more, I would love to collaborate with Native percussionists and Native vocalists and um, really bring that sound, um, you know, to, to everybody and show how beautiful their music is and how beautiful their culture is. Um, you know, in best case, actually maybe even like host an event, you know, at like one of the playblows down there where we can raise money for them and really share this culture and how beautiful everything is that they do and stuff. So that's, that's more of a, a dream thing. I don't know when that'll happen, but that's definitely something that's been on my mind for, for the last few years as I've been building this project out. I love that. 
Okay, so we're going to start to transition into the last couple of questions. And so take as long as you need to to feel into them. They are um, quite big if you want them to be. So imagine that you're at the end of your life and that you've achieved everything that you've wanted to achieve and you've lived your life the way that you've wanted to live. And you're so tapped in that you know that at the end of this next day, you're going to die peacefully in your sleep. What would you want to do on that last day? And who would you do it with? Wow. I'm, I'm mobile and stuff or? This is your future, man. You tell me. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I would like to spend the day with um, my family and friends and eat great food, get outside, watch the sunset, go to the beach and, uh, experience as many, um, as much like human connection and, and, um, human experience as I can. And those are the things that come to mind first. I would say is friends and family, good food, being outside and just like the divine of, of a sunset or going into the woods or going into the beach um, or all three, ideally. 100%. So let's take a moment. If you're at the end of your life, your parents aren't here, you know? So <clears throat> do you have a wife? How many kids do you have? Like, just take a moment and try to like paint for me again, you know, the, this is just a game, but what does the family there look like? It's deep. I haven't, I haven't thought about it too much. Um, I feel like I frequently go back and forth on whether or not I want to have kids and, and all this and that and stuff, but, um, just to paint the picture. Yeah. I mean, a wife and two kids and, uh, have my brothers there and, uh, hopefully their kids and their wives. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that sounds good. Wife and two kids, golden retriever to match. There we go. So, one of the things that's really interesting about this question is almost always, well, of course, it's friends and family, <laughs> but people also go out of their way to articulate that they want to be in nature, and they often specify forest and beach. And I don't know <laughs> what that means, but there's something interesting about that to me. Now, it's the end of the day. You've done everything that you've wanted to do. And you get to write a message on a piece of paper. So it's something that has to be able to fit on a piece of paper that your kids will get after you pass. What do you write on that piece of paper? Um, yeah, I would, I would thank them for everything that they've done for me in my life and, and just gratitude for sharing that experience together and, and let them know that I'm going to be okay and that they're going to be okay. I'm always going to be there for them and just pray that uh, they find whatever it is that they love or whoever they love and put all of it into that um, and never give up on whatever that may be or whoever that might be. Um, I think that's really just the key to being the best that you can be and being happy in this life is just really focus on those goals and, um, and live up to exactly who you want to be and, and don't give up. And I love you. Beautiful. So uh, before I let you go, um, please take a moment to let the audience know if they want to connect deeper or go check some stuff out. Where should they go? Yes, my Instagram is uh, at Weir Music, W-E-I-R. 
Um, and then you can find me on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, all of it's just uh, Weir. Um, so you can find my music there. Um, beyond that, I have a record label called New Something Records. Um, the Instagram's at New Something Records and our website's newsomething.com. So if there's any artists out there that are looking to connect to chat about the industry or want to send in demos or chat about record label stuff, um, that's a great way to connect as well. Um, but yeah, those are my main channels and stuff. Thank you so much for having me, Eric. That was a really, really fun time. I appreciate it a lot. I fucking love your music and I really enjoyed you coming on the podcast, brother. Thank you. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate that.